Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, pardon the mess a little bit behind me. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening on the podcast, on the audio stuff, then you won't see the mess. Uh, we're rearranging the podcast studio a little bit, but I wanted to take an opportunity to introduce um, our guest on this episode. This is a fantastic guest we have here. So this is Dr. Avas Aftab. Dr. Avas Aftab is a psychiatrist in Cleveland, Ohio, and a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. He completed his psychiatry residency from Case Western Reserve University and University Hospitals, Cleveland Medical Center, and Geriatric Psychiatry Fellowship from the University of California, San Diego. His academic work has focused on philosophy of psychiatry, critical psychiatry, psychopharmacology, and psychiatric nosology. He has received numerous national awards and honors, including the prestigious Laughlin Fellowship by the American College of Psychiatrists and the American Psychiatric Association Leadership Fellowship. He led the popular interview series, Conversations in Critical Psychiatry for Psychiatric Times, and a book adaptation of this series is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. His peer-reviewed scholarly work has been published in journals such as the American Journal of Psychiatry and JAMA Psychiatry. He is an associate editor for Current Psychiatry, senior editor for the journal Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology, and he has been actively involved in initiatives to educate psychiatrists and trainees on psychiatric controversies. He has a wonderful Substack called Psychiatry at the Margins. Everybody should check that out and subscribe. Um, we'll drop a link in all of the notes and description and stuff. It also has his own website. Um, but this is a great conversation. Um, hope you guys learned something. We delve into a lot of the controversies that are within psychiatry and discuss those things. So enjoy. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back. We have a wonderful, wonderful guest we have on our show today, um, Dr. Avas Aftab. And before I let him introduce himself, I want to, you know, I tweeted something out about how excited I was to have him on the show. And I wanted to kind of read what somebody said because it was, it, it, it kind of showed kind of how important per se <laughs> and how excited I am to have him on the board or out here, on here. So this is Dr. Ryan Kabir. Ryan Kabir is actually a psychiatry resident over, where is he at? Louisiana, or Louisville, I think. Louisville, right. I almost ended up in Louisville. I really like the program. It's a great program over there. But he writes, he's one of the biggest reasons I went into psychiatry. I used to be anti-psychiatry, but working with seriously mental ill patients, seeing patients get better, and yes, some harmed, and reading his work along with others put me in the critical reform camp. Still have much to learn. So much to learn. So I think that was like a, a high praise as I think I've I've seen. So welcome, Dr. Aftab. Uh, th thank you. Uh, a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, some of your introduction, background, all that stuff in your own words. Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess we'll kind of like, you know, start with start with the, with the basics of what I'm doing right now. So uh, I'm a psychiatrist in the Cleveland area. Um, I have an academic appointment through uh, Case Western Reserve University as a clinical assistant professor. Um, so I'm involved with the uh, teaching of psychiatry residents, with medical students, um, and I do clinical work uh, in the inpatient setting, uh, mostly working with uh, serious mental illness, uh, schizophrenia, spectrum, bipolar, etc. Um, and my um, academic and scholarly interests are um, quite conceptual and theoretical. So, so I've been interested in various sorts of conceptual and philosophical issues that, that, uh, that relate to psychiatry. And I've been kind of active in this, in this field and uh, sort of like, you know, a, an active participant in the discussions that are taking place. Um, and in addition to that, sort of like in addition to the philosophy of psychiatry side, I have been pretty interested in this field that's broadly known as critical psychiatry and um, kind of Sort of like you know, uh, talking to people and learning about that, and um, and I uh, there was this interview series that uh, I I did for three years for Psychiatric Times called Conversations in Critical Psychiatry, which basically involved talking to many of the prominent names uh, who had offered different sorts of philosophical and other scientific critiques of psychiatry. Um, and we have uh, we actually have there's a book adaptation of that series coming out from Oxford University Press later this year. Super, super exciting uh, to have that. I think it was like such a good series. I was able to kind of like, I mean, I didn't 
read it all, but I was able to uh, go through it all and, and kind of have an idea of all that. So first question I wanted to ask is, you know, we have the field of psychiatry as a whole and it's come under kind of critiques and all the things, but, you know, you're known for the philosophy of psychiatry. What what does that mean? What What does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah. So it's a, a philosophy of psychiatry, or sometimes it's called philosophy and psychiatry. It, it kind of refers to this broad intersection of uh, psychiatry as a discipline and, and philosophy as a discipline. And um, it, it, it's kind of similar to uh, sort of like, you know, how we have philosophy of physics and philosophy of biology, philosophy of medicine. And it, it, it refers to a couple of different things. One is that it's in, uh, it's basically a philosophical inquiry into the foundational concepts of psychiatry. So the, the concepts that psychiatry works with, so things like notion, the notion of mental illness, mental disorder, psychopathology, sort of like, you know, like what does that mean? You know, sort of like, you know, when, when we make judgments of, uh, of, a psych, uh, of a psychological condition being a disorder, like what are we saying? Um, and and uh, sort of like, you know, what is involved in these judgments? Sort of like, you know, what is the relationship between objective facts and different sorts of values? Um, sort of, uh, sort of like, you know, what is the nature of these phenomena? How does that relate to the physical world versus sort of like the social processes that uh, that exist in in society? So there's sort of like this whole aspect of a philosophical understanding of foundational concepts that that exist in psychiatric profession. Then there's this other strand which uh, looks at psychiatry as a scientific discipline and uses sort of like methods from philosophy of science as well as other philosophical uh, specialties and applies them to psychiatry. So it's sort of like, you know, it sees sort of like a psychiatry as a specific scientific discipline and understands it sort of like within this broader context, context of philosophy of science. And then there's another sort of like strand, which is it, uh, it uses psychiatric phenomena to try to inform our philosophical understanding of different issues. So for example, using various psychotic phenomena like delusions or hallucinations. And so a philosopher would sort of like, you know, uh, examine delusions, sort of like, you know, think about them and try to sort of like say, what does that tell us about the mind? Sort of like, you know, like, you know, um, if, we, if we take cases of patients sort of like, you know, who are experiencing, let's say, a thought insertion or thought withdrawal, sort of like, you know, like these sorts of unusual phenomena, like, uh, what does that tell us about sort of like the nature of mind and nature of mental processes? Or someone else might sort of like look at dementia and sort of like, you know, the, the, the way uh, Alzheimer's affects memory. And they might sort of like say, what does that tell us about the sense of self? So so these are these different strands that, that exist in this uh, broad intersection of philosophy and psychiatry that, um, that go under this umbrella name of philosophy of psychiatry. What brought you into it and, and I guess what how did you get intrigued by this because I think you know when we go through training you know I think you've got a, f a few years on me on this um, but when I went through training I was like oh we you know we're just doing medicine stuff it's real medical school and you know learn a bunch of medicines and diagnose and slap some stuff and see patients in the outpatient and boom that's it what brought you to this I guess this, this deeper level of understanding of being like something different yeah, I, I so I I really was interested in philosophy, sort of like you know since my since my teenage years, and um, I had really sort of like I think I I wanted to go into professional philosophy, uh, but uh, I I I grew up in Pakistan. That's where I did my med school as well. And basically sort of like, you know, going into professional philosophy, academic philosophy wasn't really a viable uh, kind of path there. So I ended up in med school um, and I realized pretty quickly that psychiatry was kind of like the only discipline that, that I could relate to that sort of like that spoke to me. And uh, I, I was fortunate that psychiatry also had this sort of like, you know, it, it offered this opportunity and sort of like it had this rich uh, kind of like uh, philosophical side to it that you could sort of like ask these questions in, in, in very sort of like meaningful sort of way. So so given that I, I had sort of like an interest in, in, in philosophy and sort of like, you know, I, I had kept up with sort of like uh, the literature and philosophy during during my med school, it was kind of natural that, that I started um Sort of like you know thinking about psychiatry from from this philosophical way, um, 
but as I was going through my medical training, I started getting exposed to a lot of uh, a lot of sort of like you know critiques that psychiatry sort of like you know is, is subject to the anti-psychiatry movement, various other other sorts of things, and um, and those questions, a lot of them are are quite philosophical in nature as well. Um, I, I think sort of like you know the the discussion of may sometimes take take a more anti-philosophical turn, but I think the fundamental questions that that they bring up are philosophical in nature so i started thinking about those and um and i sort of like you know uh one of my uh, professors of psychiatry in med school he recommended that that i read Irvin yalom who is a uh, who's a psychiatrist and sort of like psychotherapist well known for existential psychotherapy and uh sort of like you know his work opened up sort of like a whole new dimension and a whole new way of thinking about psychiatry as well so so i, I was really fortunate that i i had these early influences um and I was able to sort of like, you know, think about medicine and think about psychiatry in, in a way that is not part of the standard medical curriculum. Yeah. And I think it's it's really interesting because, I you know, when we're coming through, we definitely have the people that are very much like we're just going to be sitting in an outpatient office, seeing patients and that's that. And I think, you know, when I kind of started off a little bit like that was some of my mentality, right? Some of what I was thinking of doing. And I've seen more and more as, you know, you're out in the real world and you're spending, you know, years with patients now versus, you know, a rotation with them for a period of months or maybe one year total, you may spend a time with them, you know, during one of your residency years. The medicine stuff matters, you know, and I mean, medicine in regards to like the pharmaceutical stuff matters so much less. Right. And there's so much other aspects, especially and then again, I, I work in a very different population than what you are with more of the seriously mental and I do more of kind of the I don't want to say the worried well, but more of the anxiety, depression, ADHD. And, you know, I'm primarily children, adolescent work, um, but still like there's so much of the other things that matter, the therapy aspect and what is the basis of this. And I think there are people that are drawn to that so much more and it makes such a huge difference. And I it was interesting because I've only been doing more of the, the Twittering and the social media stuff in the past year and a half or so, where I've seen this whole other world, again, the, the critical psychiatry, I, you know, I'd heard of anti-psychiatry to an extent, but not to the extent that we've, you know, that we're in a kind of, we'll say in a, we're in a little bit of a group chat where, yeah. you know, this is part of the thing that comes up a lot. Um, but tell us about that, I guess. So differences between anti-psychiatry and critical psychiatry yeah it's a so uh you know it's it's a difficult question to answer and i i I think i think the difficulty comes from the fact that that the term uh, anti-psychiatry is used in a in a variety of different ways and sort of like you know and some of some of the uses of the term are more neutral versus some of the some of the other uses of the term are sort of like more pejorative and so um you know, uh, in a somewhat simplistic sort of way, like you know, w- one strand of thinking about about antipsychiatry is uh, sort of like is is in historical terms, and sort of like uh, looking at a couple of key figures in the in the 1960s and 1970s, who uh, presented sort of like very sort of like fierce uh, conceptual and philosophical challenges uh, to the legitimacy and authority of psychiatry. And so, uh, you know, these, these figures involve Thomas Oz in the U.S., uh, R.D. Ling in the, in the U.K., uh, Michel Foucault, uh, you know, the philosopher from France. Um, and sort of like, you know, there, there were others as well, but sort of like, you know, the, these were some of the more prominent uh, figures. And they, they really kind of uh, sort of like, you know, brought up sort of like, you know, difficult sort of like questions about, sort of like the the nature of mental illness and sort of like, you know, the meaning of psychosis or sort of like, you know, sort of like how medical authority and psychiatric authority operates. And um, and so all of these questions sort of like, you know, the questions that that they asked were in many ways sort of like, you know, genuine, meaningful questions. Um, You know, with with people like Thomas Zaz, I, I think sort of like there's a general sentiment that in how they attempted to uh, answer those questions, they kind of like, you know, went in a wrong direction and ended up sort of like, you know, adopting answers that that were kind of on the whole um, more harmful and misguided. But they were really sort of like, I think, undertaking an inquiry sort of like, you know, that 
was meaningful and sort of like sensible and you know uh, academic and intellectual in nature and generated a lot of um, activity. So that's sort of like you know there's this sort of like this academic intellectual strand of anti-psychiatry uh, you know that that goes back to this 1960s 1970s and there's a lot of scholarship that follows that and then this sort of like there's this other strand which is sort of like a little bit more kind of um, populist in nature and it's it's more similar to sort of like how we conceptualize the anti-vaccine movement or the anti-vax movement so it's basically sort of like driven by these sort of like closed echo chambers where there's a lot of misinformation and sort of like there's a lot of distrust of authority and sort of like there's a, a there's a sort of sort of like anti-scientific kind of like you know ethos or sort of like you know and uh and so like you know so uh, and i think a lot of people when when they think about uh, anti-psychiatry these days they're kind of thinking of this second aspect sort of like you know in the same sort of way as uh, as the anti-vaccine movement but uh, sort of like you know from an academic perspective one could ask these philosophical and historical questions about anti-psychiatry that without going into all of this conspiracy theories misinformation etc and then another thing sort of like that makes this whole thing confusing is that we have the um, sort of like the the harm patient movement sort of like you know the the survivor movement which has been kind of going on uh, in parallel sort of like you know for for decades now as well and um, and sort of like you know and their influence I think sort of like you know is mixed in with sort of like all of these other developments at, at the same time as well but in in some ways sort of like you know they're 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 distinct from from these anti anti stuff so I, I think uh, uh, you know, if we if we talk about so these days, sort of like you know, in academic circles, the term critical psychiatry is sort of like you know is, is used more more commonly, and I think partly I, I, the term became more popular as a way for people to distance themselves from this pejorative connotations of anti psychiatry, sort of like saying that you know we're not in the business of like misinformation, we're not in the business of conspiracy theories, we're we're, we're trying to do something intellectual here, we're trying to do something. Um, scholarly sort of philosophically oriented so it, it has its roots in the in the sort of like critiques of the 60s and 70s so there's no sort of like hard and fast distinction between philosophical critiques of the 60s that we call anti-psychiatry and the sorts of critiques that we see now <clears throat> uh, except sort of like i guess uh, um, um, the, the sort of like Classically, how people say is that critical psychiatry is more about sort of like reforming the profession, sort of like, you know, trying to sort of like, you know, improve it uh, without necessarily trying to uh, abolish abolish it. But so I, I think sort of like these explanation, if you look at them sort of like in a more uh, sophisticated historical sort of lens, you know, they're, they're, they're difficult uh, to kind of justify in some ways. But but that's the that's the general perception. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's hard because I think we we run into these issues with things like social media and Twitter where we're limited in the amount of characters that we can use. And then it becomes this very, you know, black or white thinking. And it's becomes like, well, if you're saying anything against psychiatry, then you're an anti-psychiatrist and you want to abolish the field and you want to kill me. Right. <laughs> and that's the kind of the, the things we run into. And of course there are, there are the people that, you know, we get, I'm sure you get the messages too, that like, Oh, you're, you're raping the kind of like society and drugging children and blah, blah, blah that we, that's out there. And it's like, no, it's obviously you're, you're, those people are on the fringe. But I think, you know, the, the critical psychiatry movement, how, how anti-psychiatry kind of started as a whole, came out of a place of wanting to reform things and make things better, right? You know, I, th I don't think there was anything necessarily wrong with it. Um, and I think there is, you know, we see this stuff in the field, and, you know, we have a stereotype in the field, we have a stereotype in, in media that's out there that's not fully, fully wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is that aspect of it that it, it can improve and we can make those differences, hopefully. Yeah, I, mean, I think sort of like you know, uh, I, I think there's a um, there's a difficult history. I, I, I think there, um, you know, I, I think that applies to like medicine generally. I think you know, if you look at the history of medicine, there's a lot of sort of like dark periods and uh, sort of like you know terrible things that that have happened, and you know, and that's also the case with with, with psychiatry. 
except sort of like you know, in the in the case of psychiatry, the patients were in a much more for like powerless position and sort of like you know and and a lot of things sort of like you know they, they were subjected to uh, many sorts of dramatic and abuses sort of like you know experiences in um, in, in, in in the name of uh, you know psychiatric care and psychiatric treatment. I, I think sort of like you know everyone is aware of you know the conditions in asylums were, for example, in 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 in, in the twentieth century. Um, which led to sort of like a a, a fear a fierce uh, backlash, and then it I think it's also the case that uh, the the nature of some of these conceptual issues is is a lot more ambiguous, you know, in in, in psychiatry, um, you know, when, when we talk about mental illness, uh, it, it has a certain sort of like abstraction to it that you know doesn't exist in sort of like you know some of the more other areas of medicine where you can point towards pathological changes or infectious organisms. So there's, uh, you know, that sort of like that degree of abstraction, I think, makes um, makes it uh, make things more challenges, sort of like, you know, um, and uh, I, I think sort of like, you know, people prefer to think in sort of like more concrete terms. And so it, 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 it brings a certain amount of like uncertainty to it, sort of like, you know, like what are we, what are we talking about? And, uh, and humans sort of like, you know, when we're dealing with human phenomena, uh, everything is seen through layers and layers of interpretation and there's such an influence of social and cultural values. So uh, we just like, you know, we're uh, like uh, the, the concepts that we are working with in, in, in psychiatry, they're just sort of like subject to a lot more disagreement than uh, than sort of like, you know, similar sorts of concepts are in rest of medicine. Yeah, like, I mean, I was just talking with somebody else about like how Dr. Amen has kind of uh, come to notoriety to an extent, but how he's become at the same time so popular is because, you know, one of the main criticisms of psychiatry, the most common one is that, you know, there's no blood test, there's no imaging, there's no, you can't pull out a stethoscope and hear something right so he you know somebody comes along and is like aha i'm going to start doing spec scans and here i'm going to show you holes in your brains and people latch onto it because they want to see something they want to see something they want to feel something they want to be able to look at something and say this is why this is happening so that's you know one of the disadvantages that we have in the field and i think it, it, it opens up a lot of problems and some things that we can always kind of improve a bit yeah, I, I think it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it gives rise to this sort of uh, polarizing tendency where, you know, either you sort of like, you know, become very concrete and, you know, start thinking in terms of like brain diseases and at the level of the brain, or you sort of like, you know, or you you start rejecting the, the reality of sort of like, you know, mental illness and sort of like, you know, psychiatric diagnosis. And you start saying, oh, it's all a myth, you know, like just because, you know, you, you can't find consistent brain differences, you're like, you know, none of this matter, none of this is real, it's all fake. So I, I think sort of like it, it's this, it, it sets up this sort of polarizing tendency. And, and I, I think the, the key is to realize that, you know, we are, we are dealing with sort of like, you know, phenomena that are that are inherently psychological, sort of like, you know, that are at the interface of sort of like brain and society. And that um, as long as we, we approach the subject with some sort of hidden reductionism, you know, as long as we privilege the brain, we're either going to be sort of like this sort of brain reductionist or we're going to be this sort of social constructionist because, you know, we are, you know, we can't think of illness concepts in terms other than that of bodily changes. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard. And I think that's kind of like it comes to the next thing where it's like, you know, diagnoses versus formulations and, you know, DSM versus all these alternatives that are kind of popping up. And talk about that a bit, like in regards to, you know, when I talk to people about the DSM, you know, there's the clinical understanding of that, hey, this, the DSM is a communication tool. It's an insurance tool. It, it doesn't mean much. Um, but then there are people, I guess, in society who are not in the field who are like, well, the DSM is the Bible of psychiatry and you guys are using the DSM against us. It becomes almost this big villain when it's not meant to be at all. And, and diagnoses as a whole are not meant to be this kind of concrete box that we're putting people into. Yeah, yeah, I, I think sort of like, you know, there's this, uh, I, I think, uh, kind of curious history of sort of like, you know, how, how DSM acquired its sort of like, you know, its current status and, you know, um, how it's used <clears throat> by professionals within the field and how it's understood by a society at large. 
And I mean, and like you said, sort of like you know, the the reality is that it 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 was a tool intended to establish some degree of reliability, sort of like you know, because what we were finding in in the in the fifties, sixties, and and seventies was that there was tremendous disagreement among psychiatrists when when seeing the same patients. It was like you know, two different two different psychiatrists would see the same patients, um, and they wouldn't even sort of like agree on like what the diagnosis is. Like it was like sort of like you know, it was all it was almost like random. So and and even sort of like you know diagnoses like schizophrenia were used were being used in wildly different ways. So the where sort of like DSM came in, especially sort of like the modern version starting from DSM three, is that they're like okay sort of like you know at least we are establishing dictionary definitions. We're sort of like you know we're kind of as a field deciding that this is what we mean by this term and this is how we're going to use it so it's, it you know it provides us with a shared language so you know so everyone is on the same page and if i use the word schizophrenia you understand what it means and if you use bipolar i understand what it means <clears throat> so it sort of like it, it provided us with these operational constructs you know it provided us with a shared language but then as you know as it started being used more and more um and it, it became sort of like you know uh sort of like, you know, the primary sort of like language which psychiatrists were using, um, it started being used for public communication and sort of like, you know, so uh, all sort of like, you know, uh, all the newspaper, all the media, they're certainly sort of like, you know, using the language of DSM and uh, and then sort of like also like in, in 80s and 90s, we start seeing uh, different sorts of anti-stigma campaigns and patient education campaigns. And we have, you know, with the rise of the Internet, we have sort of like patient education websites and all of them sort of like, you know, they're like, well, we have to talk about depression or we have to talk about anxiety sort of like, you know, so like what's what's the scientific sort of like, you know, uh, standard that we have. And they're like, oh, well, sort of like, you know, psychiatry has the DSM. SM. So, so suddenly, sort of like you know, the, all of the communication about psychiatry that the public was getting was through the language of the DSM. So it it created this sort of like you know uh, exaggerated importance in the mind of the of the general public that sort of like you know that as if as if the whole legitimacy of psychiatry hangs on on this manual. And and not only that, it created like a misunderstanding about sort of like you know the nature of these diagnostic categories. It sort of like it it became this idea that that, oh, like DSM diagnosis refer to different disease entities. That if we sort of like say that one person has major depression, another person has generalized anxiety, they are two different disease entities as if sort of like, you know, they, they are two different sorts of brain disorders that, that exist. When in fact, sort of like, you know, these are just sort of like symptom patterns. You know, we, we're not we're not saying anything about sort of like, you know, how the etiology is different or sort of like, or even if there, there is a categorical difference, you know, in, in, in their brains or anything like like that, you know, uh, these are essentially sort of like descriptive symptom patterns. But the uh, the idea that sort of like the public got was that oh, the DSM is a disease model, and each diagnosis refers to distinct diseases, and then each each sort of like and this kind of like got mixed in with the chem chemical imbalance kind of ideas, you know. So e each each disorder had its own kind of like you know unique chemical imbalance or whatever, and I think that just sort of like you know set us up set, set us up on the wrong path because. One, it, it really negatively influenced the self-understanding of patients. You know, like when, when patients got their diagnosis, they started thinking sort of like, you know, uh, in terms of the DSM and in terms of this sort of like popular disease model. And um, and sort of like, you know, and then, you know, and when, when they would investigate the scientific literature, it set them up for disillusionment. They would be like, oh, like, you know, I, I had this image of sort of like, you know, psychiatric uh, conditions as validated diseases, but look, there's no brain difference or there's no brain finding forever and they're like it's all fake you know it's a scam right so i i think i think the whole situation is like really unfortunate and i think and i think uh, i think this is where this is one area where the where the profession i think kind of um sort of like you know fell short of what it should have been doing is that it should have been paying attention to this communication aspect you know um i i think that i think the profession kind of became a little bit complacent in relying on these categories for the purposes of communication without clarifying to the public you know the the real nature of the, of the manual yeah and i think that's a really important part that to bring it up is that you know we think of psychiatry as like, you know, a very secretive thing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure how your training was, but like we were taught to be like pretty secretive and keep to ourselves a little bit. And it, you know, unfortunately we couldn't 
do that, right? The media and the world has brought us out there again, all these mental health campaigns that we wanted, you know, mental health awareness, you know, they kind of worked almost against the aspect of keeping everything secret because now everything is out in the open. Exactly like you said, you know, you can buy the DSM on Amazon now, or it's, it's, you know, however much, and it's just, there's apps for it. You can open it up. And then, you know, I, I have patients who are, who are essentially reading it off to me and telling me their diagnoses. And I was like, I remember even just somebody I was seeing earlier today was talking about, oh, I think I'm CPTSD versus and my borderline traits are in my autism. And I was like, we're just using words right now. Like, it, you know, all right. these things, it doesn't matter what your diagnosis is. Not so much, right? We're just trying to see what your distress is and how we can kind of manage that. Right. And I think you you, you mentioned uh, sort of like, you know, the diagnosis versus formulation um, kind of dynamic as well. And I, I think this is also kind of unfortunate because, you know, historically, the, the diagnosis is supposed to be embedded in a comprehensive formulation. <clears throat> and and sort of the formulation is sort of like where the where the meat of the conceptualization is and sort of like, you know, where, where different clinicians sort of like, you know, use their different different theoretical backgrounds to come up with an idea of like what's going on here. So a, a psychodynamically oriented psychiatrist would sort of like would conceptualize the patient differently than sort of like, you know, let's say a cognitive behavioral one or a biopsychosocial one. Right. So the 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 formulation is sort of like really where the the meat of sort of like, you know, the conceptualization is and what we use to guide what we are supposed to sort of like use to guide treatment. But as sort of like, you know, uh, managed care and other sort of like, you know, changes took place in, in, in sort of like, you know, in psychiatry and practice started sort of like, you know, visit times sort of like shortened and you, we had like more and more structured note writing things, formulation kind of retreated and sort of like, you know, diagnosis became the central thing. And this got reinforced with various sorts of practice guidelines, which are all diagnosis based and sort of like, you know, don't really focus on the personalization or conceptualization aspect. So I, I think that dynamic also um, reinforced that that it's as if the diagnosis is giving you the, the understanding and diagnosis is telling you the cause and diagnosis is giving you an account of theology when 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 it's really not it's it's the formulation that is supposed to be doing those things. Yeah, I you know when I'm working in like my adolescent PHP, you know all of my patients that I'm carrying have major depressive disorder, recurrent, severe, without psychosis, right? That's what, and they all have generalized anxiety disorder, right? That's what their diagnoses are. But they're all vastly different kids and teens, right? They have so yeah. many different things that are going on that there's no way that that can be encapsulated in a diagnosis. And again, exactly what you're saying is the meat and potatoes, like where, where you're, the real worth of a psychiatrist as a whole comes from, is from that formulation and then identifying what can we do to help each of those kind of stressors, those mitigating factors versus just saying, well, major depression, generalized anxiety, here's some Zoloft, go on your way and feel better. Yeah. And I, and I think this sort of dynamic is what is, I think, driving um, sort of like, you know, the search for a lot of alternatives due to the DSM is that they're, they're trying to sort of like uh, break the hold of this categorical thinking. Um, and especially I think that has really hindered our, our sort of like, you know, scientific research because, you know, for, for three, three decades, three to four decades, like, you know, a lot of our, our research has been oriented around single DSM categories. So we'll have like, you know, uh, major depression versus normal control, schizophrenia versus normal control, you know, and, and what we're sort of like finding is that, you know, the, these labels don't correspond to biology in any straightforward way, you know, like the, like the neurobiology of the brain doesn't respect what the DSM diagnosis is going to be. The, these processes are transdiagnostic, um, and sort of like these uh, categories are extremely heterogeneous. And and if you look at the sort of like the psychological distribution of symptoms, it's all dimensional. Sort of like you know, there's no sort of like clean break anywhere. So uh, so I, I think sort of like uh, so I sort of like see it as a good thing that that the power, the cultural power of the DSM has weakened, and sort of like you know, so so now we have different sorts of other initiatives sort of like you know we have our docs sort of like you know for sort of like for research we have high top for quantitative psychology we have clinical characterization sort of like you know to guide sort of like formulation kind of things uh, we have clinical staging models coming up so so i i think that i think that's really wonderful because you know uh, dsm was never intended to be sort of like this single manual to rule everything right it was just sort of like one effort uh, but but somehow it became 
the only lens through which we understood psychiatry for three decades and we have finally kind of like woken up and we're like you know we, we need other approaches too we need other other ways of conducting research and, and thinking about psychopathology yeah it's it's not sauron's ring right yeah so, <laughs> um in this kind of thread in this way a bit like how can we you know looking at this improve psychiatry how can we improve the field of psychiatry or is it improving psychiatrists you know is it so is the problem psychiatry is the problem psychiatrists yeah you know it's a uh, uh i i guess sort of like you know it, it's a little bit of both and i i think sort of like the the challenge that comes up um in in my view is that that problems exist at multiple levels i, I think we have um i think we have certain sort of like problems at the, at the conceptual level sort of like you know then we have then we have problems kind of like at the at the level of clinical practice sort of like you know the, the ways in which clinical practice constrain and then then we have problems at the at the societal level sort of like you know sort of like the general attitudes and and all of those sort of like you know things kind of you know feed into each other and mix in it, it until it becomes sort of like this like haphazard um, uh, mess and i think we have to address all of those uh things uh, sort of like you know um one one by one and so you know i i've been interested in a lot more on on the conceptual side so i've been kind of like you know talking about that so you know so we for example you know we just spoke about dsm so sort of like you know so this is often sort of like referred to as the reification of the dsm that is sort of like you know we we make abstract categories more concrete and we attribute to them a reality that they don't possess sort of like you know and then uh sort of like you know th sort of like thinking more clearly about sort of like disorder concepts and pathologization sort of like like, you know, is it a good idea that we call everything in a diagnostic manual a disorder? Like, you know, is it a good idea to call prolonged grief a disorder or adjustment as a disorder, right? And what 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 changes, uh, what, like, you know, what does it communicate to the patient? And sort of like, you know, how does the how does it affect their self understanding? I think so. This is something that we have kind of you know neglected, and so we have so you know so that has resulted in dissatisfaction. You know, like people get a disorder, a diagnosis of personality disorder, or they sort of like you know and uh, in sort of like you know then they 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 feel as if they you know some sort of um th that they have been wronged in some way sort of like you know as if someone is saying that there's a part of you that is like broken or sort of like you know so so we haven't sort of like paid attention to sort of like you know the subtle meaning that these terms can weigh and then i think there's this sort of there has been this sort of general reductionistic tendency where i think we sort of like we tend to reduce everything psychological to the brain level sort of like you know we want to sort of like see we want to understand it in neuro neurological terms and i think this this was the sentiment behind chemical imbalances and the decade of the brain and and all of this brain disorder talk you know as if sort of like you know uh, uh sort of like a psychological ailment couldn't have validity unless you show that there's a brain problem right so i think so so those i think tendencies are i think real i think those are problematic in the field we need to counter them i think that at the at the clinical level i think the the issue is that you know uh clinicians are working under sort of like a lot of constraints that are that are not good for clinical practice they don't have enough time they're they're burdened by documentation and they are threatened by sort of like all of these sorts of lawsuits so they're they're practicing very defensively so the the incentives that that drive clinical practice are not for the benefit of the patient they're for the benefit of the insurance companies and pharma companies and hospital administrators so the incentives are all skewed and and patients are getting sort of like you know clinicians who are burnt out who are sort of like who are stressed who don't have enough time and all they have time to do is sort of like give them a quick diagnosis and here's your ssri or here's your stimulant and and then on to the next patient so they're not getting sort of like you know the sort of comprehensive humanistic uh, care that we need and then at the societal level sort of like you know there's this tremendous stigma around sort of like you know mental illness and there's just sort of like this tremendous uh, lack of resources and funding you know like we we, we don't have um uh, sort of like you know enough money to provide services sort of like you know like community community clinics don't have resources you know they don't have enough case managers they don't have enough social workers not enough therapists right so at the societal level sort of like we have this issue of funding and resources and where the money is going so um you know uh unfortunately sort of like you know we have to tackle all all of them but it's 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 just sort of like you know it it's difficult no, for sure. It's definitely like I mean, I, I think you're talking about we 
especially with in regards to the just the mental health worker shortage, you know, because it does cause us then to not do the work that we were trained to do, right? There's so many, I think, I think psychiatry training across the board is fantastic. You know, we pump out some good people, but we're not allowed to do the work that we were trained or that we're able to do. You know, we're, you know, they, they apply insurance companies and hospital administrators, and they apply the kind of same idea that like, oh, we're like pediatricians in family care. We should be able to see people in five minutes or 15 minutes and keep going. And, you know, it's, I, I have the benefit of being able to spend time, you know, at my private practice and then even at my other work with the hospital is like enough time with my patients. You know, people are like, you're doing 60 minute, 90 minute evaluations. You're doing 30 minute follow-up visits. So I was like, yeah, what do you, what, that's all I know. And that's why I have the benefit to do that. And then, you know, I have patients who come to me and they're like, oh, you're, you want to ask me questions beyond how's my medicine? And it's kind of like, this is what's been kind of drilled into people's head is that we're just the pill pushers and the, the we're the prescription pad. When we have the training and the ability to do so much more, we're, we're just, so many of us are not allowed to do that. And we're just not able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Even when sort of like, you know, when I think clinicians want to do better, they, they don't get sort of like, you know, uh, help and resources and, and the right sort of environment from, from the system and from the hospitals to, to do that. And I think patients, you know, they, they don't get to see what's happening behind the scenes, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, they sort of like, you know, their, their, their direct contact is basically with, with the clinician. So it's sort of you know so so all of the frustrations and grievances that that they have against the medical healthcare system in general, they kind of get focused on on the clinician and sort of like you know clinicians often end up being blamed for for a lot of like problems and uh, issues that are out of their control. Yeah, and I think this is like really brought up. I mean, you had done something with the New York Times that kind of uh, choose your own adventure in yeah. a way <laughs> of like you know what happens if you're you're feeling a little bit sad and you want to get some help. So. Talked about a little bit about how that kind of came about. It was really, really cool and interesting, and highlighted some of these issues and problems. Yeah, it was sort of like it was. Uh, um, uh, I, I was working with the with the New York Times uh, uh, sort of like opinion team, and we were we were kind of wondering like sort of like you know how do we convey to to, to the general public. Uh, what it's like, sort of like, you know, receiving care <clears throat> uh, and and sort of like, you know, not simply from the patient perspective, but from like the clinician perspective and sort of like, and what's the thought process that go into it and what are the system constraints that go into it and, and also sort of like, why is it that so many people... They, they seek help sort of like you know like you know like the message everyone is getting is like you know if you are if you're suffering go talk to a doctor if you're depressed go talk to your doctor but when they go talk to their doctor you know they don't get better or they don't get the help they need or it's just like an end, endless cycle of medication after medication so like why is that happening so it, so that was sort of like you know the, the that whole choose your own adventure type thing was designed to kind of like walk people through that whole experience and expose them one to sort of like you know it's just sort of like the fact that the medications we have are effective, but, but they're not magic bullets or sort of like, you know, that they work only to a certain extent. And there's an unavoidable element of dry, trial and error involved at the moment because we don't have the science is not there yet where we can personalize, you know, we, we can't predict which medication would work for which someone. So, the, you know, inevitably sort of like, you know, there's that element and then there's that small, there's about sort of like, you know, like a 33% or so, you know, a, some, some subset of patients that just don't respond to standard medications at all, right? And so like, you know, so getting getting through all of those trials and getting to a point where realizing that nothing, none of that is working for you and where you're trying to get psychotherapy, but you know, you're not getting the right software that you need and you're getting suboptimal care so it was just sort of like you know it was intended as sort of like this sort of like wake up call for people that you know like this is what's what's going on and it's kind of like you know just kind of like you know to force them to think a little bit about sort of like you know these forces operating uh on 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 clinical practice yeah i think i i did it and i think i had a very good outcome i think i did like a wash and wait and then like <laughs> my depression got better after <laughs> watching and wait, waiting miraculously i was like yes I, yeah I but I was like, I know, I know how how uncommon that is, and you know, we we hear this especially in you know here in Cleveland. I'm in you know outside of DC area, like you know, there's academic resources, you know, um, centers where you're at and where I'm at. So there's access at times, but like when we go to like other Midwest kind of cities or states where there's nobody, like and like people are waiting, you know, six months a year to see somebody, 
and you know it's like what what are you supposed to do just you know when there's emergencies tell somebody like go go wait for six months and hopefully we'll see you then like it doesn't work so yeah yeah it's really it's just like you know there's tremendous need and which is sort of like you know why you know i'm kind of like you know generally skeptical of sort of like you know some of the more sort of like rhetorical kind of ideas that we can just like you know abolish the guy tree we can just eliminate you know i mean like you know because because when you when you sort of like see how much need there is and how much people are suffering and how long they're they're waiting sort of like you know you know we we need uh, sort of there is a need for a medical profession that yeah. sort of like you know that tackles these problems and i don't think that's going to go away anytime soon no i i've said it as like i've said it multiple times it's like i could clone myself 10 times and work 24 hours around the clock and in my lifetime it won't make a dent in you know and and what in my local area so it's just it's just a ridiculous amount of need so yeah the, the challenge though is sort of like you know that i think um you know, because there's such shortage, people are like, well, sort of like, you know, substandard care is better than no care. So they sort of like, you know, they <clears throat> they use, for example, sort of like, you know, some sometimes mid-levels with inadequate training or sort of like, you know, they're just like, you know, overburdened clinicians. And then patients sort of like end up being dissatisfied or harmed by the treatment they're receiving. And I, I think we really have to be careful that in an effort to sort of like make treatment more accessible, we do have to maintain certain standards, you know, because a lot of times substandard care can can actually be worse than no care. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. As I, you know, I've said it before, is that like bad psychiatric care is worse, much worse than no psychiatric care. And I think it's something that we have to kind of keep that in mind. So you've talked about or you've advocated for conceptual comp- competence in psychiatric education. What is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's a uh, so this is sort of like a, a proposal that um, uh, this was a paper in 2020 and then sort of like in print in 2021 in academic psychiatry, uh, where Scott Waterman, he's also another psychiatrist in the philosophy of psychiatry community. We kind of like you know we made a case for including conceptual competence in psychiatric training, and we, we sort of like we said that we we talk about cultural competence, sort of like you know right, sort of like being aware of how different cultural differences influence psychiatric presentations and care, and we talk of structural competence, how all of these societal sort of like power structures and inequalities affect uh, psychiatric care, and so you know just as we expect clinicians to be competent in these areas, we also sort of like need that clinicians to be competent in thinking clearly about the concepts that they're using and sort of like, you know, the, the sort of like the assumptions that they are, they're working with. And, and in a way, sort of like, you know, this is a way of incorporating um, like insights from like philosophy of psychiatry, you know, in, into psychiatric education, but in a manner that is uh, clinically relevant, sort of like, you know, in a manner that is relevant for psychiatric research and, and psychiatric education. Because, you know, because um, a lot of time when they, when they think about philosophy of psychiatry, they, they think of sort of like, you know, uh, you know, some of the more uh, obscure, sort of obscure philosophers, you know, they might think of like, you know, Wittgenstein or sort of like, you know, uh, Sartre or, you know, and they're like, you know, sort of like, what, what does that have to do with clinical practice? practice but really i think sort of like you know the the essence is that it's about thinking clearly about the concepts that we are using and sort of like you know thinking clearly about the assumptions that that guide them because these assumptions sort of like you know may, may make a difference you know uh, like if you um like i said you know if, if you if you diagnose a patient using the dsm and you have this sort of like this rarefied view of the dsm where each D, each category is a distinct sort of like disorder with its own dysfunction you know your care sort of like is very different than someone who uses dsm as pragmatic categories as sort of like you know um or someone sort of like you know someone who's operating with a reductionistic sort of mindset versus someone who's sort of like you know operating with a pluralistic mindset etc so it's basically a way to sort of like advocate for like how do we get psychiatric trainees to think more sort of like you know more clearly and sort of like more openly about these concepts and terms sort of like that we're using that how do we get them to think about you know if i call someone if i if i say that something is a, is a disorder what do i mean by that if if a patient asks me that you know you you have diagnosed me like you know what what does that mean right and sort of that they are able to coherently explain explain it to them so it's it's this sort of like it's it's emphasizing the conceptual side of psychiatry that this is something we have neglected but this is an essential part of what what we do as psychiatrists yeah 
I think that's really important because you know we we definitely have more of the the U generation, the Gen Z, where people are wanting to be and 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 should be informed of what's going on and and how you know their own health, their own mental health, everything like that, and being able to take you know uh, advocacy and and have a good understanding of and being autonomous. So. Yeah, and I think the, it's good that we have sort of like I think some really excellent role models. So, for example, I think we we have a mutual admiration for Kenneth Kendler, who's sort of you know wonderful psychiatrist and researcher, yeah, but also yeah. like very well known name in philosophy of psychiatry. And I think he has done a lot to sort of like bring some of these conceptual issues to sort of like you know to the consciousness of the psychiatric uh, sort of like you know scientific community. Um, so, um, you know, uh, I, I think we, we have some great role models there to, to sort of like, you know, um, that this is not sort of like just discussions that are happening, let's yeah. say, sort of like, you know, um, sort of like, you know, by, you know, by the humanities or sort of like, you know, this like that. Th- these are discussions that are taking place within the scientific community in, in very robust ways. Yeah. We, where do you see, you know, the field kind of going i know there are people who are very much in the biological camp and saying like you know we have these companies GeneSight and genomine that are popping up and you know there's the research and everything that's in there where do you see kind of like the field of psychiatry going as a whole then yeah so i think i think um um i guess sort of like you know there there are sort of like directions in which I would like the, the field to go and then sort of like, you know, there are directions that it, it may actually take in practice and, you know, they're, they're not really going to uh, going to match. Uh, but I think uh, sort of like, you know, w- what I would sort of like really like, I think is sort of like, you know, is, is for psychiatry to become sort of like much more pluralistic and much more sort of like multidimensional um, in, in sort of like, you know, in, in its thinking and scope. And I think we're already seeing signs of that sort of like, you know, uh, signs of that happening. And I, I want that to happen sort of like, you know, both scientifically as well as sort of like uh, clinically and ethically and sort of like, you know, politically. So, for example, on, on the scientific side, as I mentioned, sort of like, you know, we, we are giving up this reliance on sort of like on the DSM as sort of like as the only sort of like, you know, tool we are using and we are kind of exploring these other ways of understanding psychopathology and psychiatric distress so uh, I, th- I think it's completely right that we need like you know some approaches that are focused on brain functioning and trying to understand sort of like you know how brain functioning connects to uh, various sorts of psychological phenomena we need sort of like a, a quantitative approaches that are looking at how symptoms kind of co-vary and how symptoms kind of match and then sort of like you know we have uh, we need other uh, other forms of sort of like research strategies that are looking at, for example, development and clinical staging, uh, right? And uh, we also sort of like, uh, sort of like, you know, need methods that are that are sort of like coming in from from other disciplines. So sort of like, you know, we're looking at uh, from uh, sort of like, you know, thinking from complex dynamic systems, and sort of like, you know, we're sort of like, you know, taking inspirations from our colleagues in neuroscience. So, so I, I think all of that sort of like I, I think we're, we're kind of heading in the, in the right direction. The second sort of like I think we, we I think we, that needs to happen is that I think psychiatry needs to become more democratic, and I I think this is because compared to other medical specialties, there's a more prominent element of uh, social control in sort of like in our in a field, and so you know uh, for for better or worse, psychiatry has been tasked to deal with a variety of harmful states sort of like you know sort of like you know where there is a serious or imminent risk of you know someone harming themselves or sort of like you know where there's risk for like violence or there's risk for public disruption or risk of sort of like grave disability and self-neglect so psychiatry you know that the burden has fallen onto psychiatry's shoulder to kind of like you know to make sure that the patients stay safe in, in conditions like that and but the end result sort of like is that when um, anytime you exercise power and anytime sort of like, you know, exercise control, um, there are downsides and sort of like, you know, and some people are traumatized and some people have really terrible experiences. And especially if, if all of that is happening in a very underfunded system. And um, I, I think sort of like in right now, I think the public perception is that, oh, sort of like, you know, it's like psychiatry is claiming this illegitimate authority of sort of like, you know, of coercing us and sort of like, you know, and we just sort of like, you know, we need to like re- remove psychiatrists from this equation and everything will be all right. And and they're missing the fact how sort of like the, the, the sort of like 
the mandate is coming from the society and from the law and all of those things. And I think this is where I think psychiatry needs to be open about what is happening. Sort of like, you know, it needs to be sort of like, sort of like, you know, like this is why these things are happening. These are the considerations, you know, like, you know, you're not being involuntary detained because of this DSM diagnosis. You're being involuntary detained because of these sort of like risk, risk factors or risk criteria. And, and these are risk criteria that are enshrined in the law or whatever. And that way, you know, like the society can have a democratic discussion, sort of like, you know, they can they can decide sort of like, you know, what sort of laws they want or sort of like what sort of, you know, better uh, sort of like, you know, things to campaign for. And I think that that takes a little bit of the pressure out of psychiatry too. And I think sort of like it makes things more uh, sort of like, you know, it, it makes things more transparent and it gives people power in having and sort of like say in sort of like, you know, what they want the laws and, and sort of like and the, and the politics to be. Yeah. Why is it important for psychiatrists to be engaging in these discussions? Why is it important for them to be on things like social media, having discussions with people who may have differing opinions versus just sitting in a box and just writing prescriptions all day? Yeah, and I mean, so I, I think this is, you know, this is sort of what has been what, is, what has been happening, uh, you know, in in the last couple of decades is that that clinicians have just been kind of like you know interested in in the clinical work and the scientific work, but uh, but that doesn't sort of like you know stop the conversations from happening, and you know as sort of like you know as you're aware and sort of others others who are active in in the public sphere kind of know that uh, these discussions are taking place with or without us. And and when they happen without us, sort of like, you know, all sorts of uh, misunderstandings and misinformation and sort of like distorted ideas kind of, you know, um, influence and influence them. And I think sort of like the reason is that, you know, one sort of like, you know, I, I think psychiatry is just sort of like, you know, in a, it's comparatively early in its scientific development, sort of like, you know, we just, you know, we don't know a lot of things about sort of like, you know, about how brains work, about how mind works, you know, like even sort of like, you know, a, a lot of sort of like basic scientific things are kind of uncertain. And then sort of like, you know, um, unfortunately, sort of like, you know, the interventions that we have at our disposal, you know, they have you know some degree of sort of like efficacy constraints and they have adverse effects and and sort of like you know and then sort of like we have this coercive side so like the bottom line is that people are going to be dissatisfied it's inevitable a, a certain subset of pa patients who receive psychiatric care are going to be unhappy with that they're going to have negative experiences they're going to sort of like you know be traumatized and they're going to speak up naturally sort of like you know and it's sort of like it's the right to speak up uh, but sort of like you know there's th there's going to be that element of sort of like you know discontent um, and sort of like, you know, and the more we ignore that, the more sort of like, you know, the more vocal sort of like, you know, those voices kind of would become in the in the, in the public sphere. And it would sort of like, it, it kind of like start setting up a dynamic that's kind of un unhealthy for, for everyone. And so I, I think sort of like, you know, ignoring that doesn't help anyone sort of like you know it, it doesn't help sort of like those people it doesn't help the profession it just or in fact it's sort of like it just like sets up this sort of like dynamic where people uh sort of like you know become more and more traumatized more and more angry and they're just like you know uh we're just you know if psychiatry is not going to engage with us which we can just you know we're going to have these conversations without them and we're going to try to sort of like you know talk to the politicians without them and sort of like you know so uh, uh you know i i think for the for the sake of our own profession sort of like you know um i think we need to be active and i think we need to sort of like for one sort of like genuinely listen listen and sort of like figure out sort of like you know what what is driving all of this sort of like you know this sort of like you know what are what are the reasons patients are dissatisfied because you know we have a responsibility to them you know we have a responsibility not just to the people who get better with our treatment, but also sort of like people who are who end up being harmed in a wide variety of ways. So we have to listen to them, and we have a responsibility to try to do whatever we can collectively to sort of like you know to to, to remedy that. Uh, so uh, so I think you know, and we can only do that if we if we are an active participant. Um, uh, 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 otherwise, we're not going to be exposed to that. Yeah, I think that's that's the the big kind of takeaway is that. For you know, we t we tell our patients all the time the same thing is like you know we ask for feedback from or we ask them to receive feedback and to get better and improve. We have to do the same thing as a field, right? We have to be able to look at ourselves. We have to hear what the critiques are, see what we are doing wrong. Are we doing something wrong? Probably, maybe, and then trying to make some changes so that we can 
keep improving this field. You know, it's something, you know, we, we brought it up a little, I was asking before, like, is it a psychiatry or is it a psychiatrist problem? I was like, you know, we're, we're both Pakistani Muslims. I can say is like, you know, I, with Islam, you know, the religion itself is, it's a beautiful religion, right? We're biased maybe. Um, but I think there's a lot of Muslims who, who give it such a poor, poor image and it's a similar kind of thing. It's, you know, psychiatry can be a very beautiful thing, but there's a lot of psychiatrists who give it a very, very terrible, terrible image. And unless we fix that and change that, it's just going to keep perpetuating. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think there, there there's something about sort of like this analogy uh, with with religion. I, I personally have a complicated relationship with religion, but but I sort of like, you know, I certainly sort of like see that I think where uh, you have some people like the new atheists who sort of like, you know, who see religion in a very literal sort of way, where it's just sort of like, you know, it's just, you know, some some fairy tale that people kind of foolishly believe in. And it's, it's causing all of these problems in society. And the best thing we can do is just sort of like, you know, eliminate that. We're just sort of like, you know, there's this other sort of like rich understanding of religion as sort of like, you know, uh, where it, it sort of like you know it serves as a source of morality and sort of like you know a guidance sort of like you know and where where it where you can use it to sort of like you know uh, improve your life and improve the life of others right and uh, so there are different ways in which we can sort of like you know understand and approach sort of like you know um, religion and if we let sort of like you know the more sort of like you know uh, extremist or fundamentalist sort of like type of people become the the image of, of, you know, of the religion or the spokesperson, then sort of like, you know, you're going to correspondingly sort of like have that sort of backlash. And, um, and I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of the people, you know, have that sort of image of psychiatry where sort of like, it's like, oh, like psychiatrists are pill pushers, only interested in the disease model. And sort of like, you know, they're just like, you know, they just think about the brain and they don't care about lived experience. They don't care about phenomenology. They don't care about all of these other things. Um, they don't sort of like care about the humanistic dimension of, of, the, of, of clinical care. And, uh, you know, it's up to us to change that. Yeah. No, hundred percent. So, wrapping up a bit, um, I always ask all my people on here: How do you take care of yourself, right? Because we always preach to our patients, you know, self care, self care, take care of ourselves. What, what is your self care? <laughs> uh, I, I think sort of like I, I, I think it's, um, uh, I, I think in, in psychiatry and and in psychology, you know, we we place a lot of emphasis on like boundaries, and I, I think it really comes down to sort of like you know, setting setting boundaries in in kind of some way. It's sort of like you know, um and sort of like you know and you know even sort of like you know when we are active online you know there's sort of like you know uh there's only so much engagement sort of like you know we we can sort of like you know uh be, be a part of it's especially sort of like you know if, if you have you know um even sort of like a remotely decent social media presence you're gonna be sort of like you know engaging with like thousands of people and you're gonna be getting sort of like you know so many sort of like different people tagging you or sort of like replying to you and commenting you and um you know, we have to be sort of like, you know, we have to be careful in sort of like, you know, what sort of, um, what sort of content we engage with and sort of like, you know, what sort of sort of like, you know, um, perspectives we kind of like, you know, um, give more, more priority to. Because I think, I think sort of like if we kind of, um, I think if we, we can get caught up and I think it's sort of like, it can sort of like really negatively affect sort of like, you know, um, our our mental well-being and so uh, so i i think i think it's sort of like really important to have some idea of like you know where my boundaries are going to be sort of like and how, how i'm going to limit my engagement and keep it in a way that is sort of like you know it's, it's positive and productive yeah i know like i after a long time i was able to take like a vacation out of country over the summertime for like that one week where i like was able to disconnect it was great <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> it was fantastic yeah and I, th I think sort of like you know i think uh, burnout right now is, is a problem across like medicine and and sort of like you know and in psychology and i think the the systems that we work in they want to sort of like you know uh, they want to get uh, uh, sort of like you know as much work out of us as, as they can and yeah. so making sure that sort of like you know we're getting sort of like you know that we are you know devoting enough attention to ourselves, to our families, or if like we're taking time off, you know, it, it becomes even more important. Thousand percent, thousand percent. Well, Dr. Aftab, any, any last kind of statements or things you want to pass along to anybody who may be listening or watching? Uh, I, th I think I'll just sort of like, I'll, I'll just like reiterate the, the importance of, I, I think, 
you know, thinking about uh, sort of like, you know, psychiatry with more sort of like conceptual clarity and philosophical clarity. Um, uh, it's sort of like, I mean, thinking about sort of like, you know, like how sort of like these things influence uh, self-understanding of patients. And you know, like, so I would encourage like all clinicians, you know, like, like don't just be sort of like content with giving a patient a diagnosis, kind of like, you know, explore with them, sort of like, what does this mean to you? How do you understand this? Sort of like, you know, what do you think I'm telling, telling you? And sort of like, you know, and you would be surprised sort of like, you know, what what they tell you. And sort of like, I think if you if you make an effort to sort of like, you know, spend some time with them and make sure that that what you are communicating is sort of like, you know, is is conceptually and scientifically accurate and correct, that would go a long way in solving the problems that we, we have when it comes to clinical interactions in psychiatry. Yeah, I think it's a, a great, great message. I think it's one of the greatest takeaways that I've had from like being on social media a bit more and interacting like with, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all this Twitter stuff is hearing from people who are who are not my patients but are are patients of somebody else and hearing hearing back from them and I've been able to really learn so 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 much from from being able to do that. And I really encourage everybody to kind of learn from that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, so. I, 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 I agree. So ho- hopefully people who are listening sort of like, you know, <laughs> uh, it makes an impression. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you. I know I've learned so much just from even spending this hour with you. I'm sure everybody else has been able to learn a bit too. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right.